look, that's terrible. It's not hurting anyone. Neither are we. Oh, God. Every time I see one of those old guys, I, I always think the same thing. What do you think? I always think that he was once somebody's baby boy. Yeah, I do, I think. He was once somebody's baby boy, and he had a mother and a father who loved him. And now there he is, half dead on a park bench. Hey, Harry, what do you say we take a break? Come on, we'll go to Al's Trans Bay. I'll buy you a beer, huh? How about that? No, uh, I want to finish this. He thought you'd turn those tapes in. Stan, be quiet, will you? All right, all right. Jack Tar Hotel, 3 o'clock, room 773. You heard, if you fill me in a little bit once in a while, did you ever think of that? It has nothing to do with me, and even less to do with you. It's curiosity. Did you ever hear of that? It's just goddamn human nature. Listen, if there's one surefire rule that I have learned in this business is that I don't know anything about human nature. I don't know anything about curiosity. I don't, that's not part of what I do. What I, this is my business. Hi guys, welcome into episode 2 of Film Tank. I'm your host, Alex Diekman, and on this episode, we will be discussing the 1974 drama thriller, thriller, The Conversation, starring Gene Hackman and directed by Francis Ford Coppola, who is best known for The Godfather films. On this episode, we have Nick Cheney with us. Welcome in, Nick. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. You are always welcome, sir. Also, we have Kenny Marcellus, who was on the last episode. What's going on, guys? And he's going to hopefully be on every episode. Good to be back. And we have another guy with us who was not on the last episode because he's a jerk. His name is Toussaint Egan. Welcome to the show, Toussaint. You're a jerk, Alex, and thank you for having me. (laughs) I love that. I feel feel honored because you called me a jerk and you said thank you. So (laughs) that's really awesome. So on the last episode, which was the Kingsman episode, uh, myself, Nick, and Kenny gave uh, the listeners our kind of way we are with films, how what we like, what we don't like. We didn't get to hear that from Toussaint, so could you give the audience an idea of what kind of a film viewer you are? What kind of film viewer I am? I, am. I just said that, so yeah. I know, I'm just repeating it. <laughs> <laughs> Jackass. Anyway, um, the kind of genres that I like to watch are science fiction, psychological thrillers, um, horror movies, classic horror movies, and basically dramas that have like a really charismatic tragic hero like i really like those okay very good so what would you call your favorite like top three or four films of all time top favorite uh films have to be uh gattaca okay uh, kiss kiss bang bang oh and ridley scott's alien Oh, wow. It's funny because you should have been here because we discussed the alien films on the last episode. I know. You yeah. told me that. I'm actually planning to watch all of them this week. Oh, wow. That's, that's on my to-do list this week. You was it on the last episode two. or was it on a unaired segment? It may may well could have been, but we, ta- we have talked about it. And if the listeners had not heard on the last episode, we're not full of shit. We've talked about it at some point. <laughs> yes. Oh, and The Prestige. I love that movie. Oh, high five right there. Boom. Yeah. Ah. The Prestige is awesome. Yeah, it is. <laughs> what? Why are you laughing? The Prestige is great. We can high five no, on the no, show. No, no, that's fine. I, it's totally cool. We are Just not weird. Knocking cool. beers over, over all the equipment. <laughs> awesome. 
Are we we're uh, drinking while we're doing this? Is that no, happening right now? No. 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 Um, sorry, I have to drink the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> so as I mentioned in the opening, we're discussing the film The Conversation on this episode. And this film is about a paranoid secretive surveillance expert who has a crisis of consciousness. Consciousness? Con- conscience? That's C- the one. Conscience. When he suspects that a cup and all This is why Alec is the host, by the way. Did you just fucking call me Alec? Ooh. I oh Alex. my. I heard Alec. I heard Alec. A... Okay. The dream is collapsing. <laughs> <laughs> Kenny loves Inception, so don't talk shit about that movie. Oh. I do. <laughs> <laughs> You guys liked it when you first saw it. I did. That is true. But now you don't like it anymore. That is also true. (laughs) Anyways, yeah, I'm not really good at that kind of reading thing, so that's not good. But anyways, the conversation about um, the main character, Harry Cowell. Is that how you say it? Or Cowell? Cowell. Cowell. Because I think it's supposed to be a a joke. Is it? You know, surveillance, phone calls. Oh! Oh. I didn't even think about that. But yes. Yeah, Yeah, it is. Right. Sounds the same. So anyways, this film, directed by Francis Ford Coppola, right around the time that the second Godfather film came out. Same year, yep. Which is pretty interesting, because if you thought of any director putting out two films in the same year these days, that would almost be unheard of. Not only that, but this is the one the one we're talking about, won the Palme d'Or at the Cannes Film Festival, and yet The Godfather uh, Part Two, which was came out the same year, won the Best Picture Oscar. So that's uh, pretty much the best year you could ever have. I was going to say, that's a pretty damn good year for Francis Ford Coppola. Yes. Probably his best year, which is maybe why a lot of his other films have not been so good. So, Nick, usually start us off. So let's hear what you thought about this film. And it also is fitting since you were the one who suggested this film to the other hosts. So let's hear what you had to think about it. I was. For those who don't know, we actually each uh, will rotate and pick the film. So this is the one that I chose for our first uh classic viewing and i am a huge fan of this film um it's kind of right up my alley i love slow burn character dramas which is basically what this is i think it it definitely uh starts out as i would say something a little different because it uh it pushes the paranoia thriller aspect of it pretty hard in the first 30 minutes uh, but for me, this is just one of the best depictions of uh, loneliness in cinema I've ever seen. Uh, the character of Harry Call is just a very, very rich character. I mean, every scene in this film tells you something about him, which is kind of what the best scripts do for me. Um, for instance, after his first job, he goes home and he uh, he opens up the, his apartment and that's locked and alarmed. I mean, that right there is not just a tie-in to obviously his career, but just tells you how guarded of a person he is really quick i wanted to mention i should have mentioned at the top but um on certain films on this show we will be doing complete reviews of films and revealing spoilers about them and so i will have something in the text when you listen to this episode noting that it is going to have spoilers in it but i just wanted to mention to anybody who is listening now if you don't want to know anything more about the conversation you should probably not listen to this part of the for 40 years yeah get it together guys but so that way people know but i had not seen it before and you had not seen it and had had not seen it either so so it it could happen that people have not seen it and they do not want to have it ruined but we're going to talk about the movie as a whole on this episode for sure yeah so no but just going back to what i was saying it's you know for me it's uh, like i said it's the best depiction of maybe not the best but one of the all-time best depiction of loneliness i've seen in a film because like some other character moments that i love i mean 
There's a, a few scenes of Gene Hackman's character playing the saxophone along mm-hmm. with a record, uh, and that's just literally, I mean, you know, a man in the room, he can't just play by himself. He has to play with a record because it creates this illusion that he's doing this with other people, mm-hmm. but he doesn't like the actual intimacy that that would actually require. Um, some other, I mean, little things I just want to mention before we get into a bigger discussion is just that opening scene, um, opening scenes are very important for me for a film that will literally kind of make or break whether this film kind of knows what it wants to say. And for me, this opening scene definitely does that because it's a one, uh, continuous shot as the camera just kind of pans around and we actually start to learn things about both the plot of the film because we'll see the... <laughs> quote-unquote conversation mm-hmm. that uh, will be the kind of subject of the film but we also get introduced to the character of Harry right away and one of my favorite little details of this film is that right at the very beginning we uh, see him walking around as he's doing his job before he goes to the van and he's bothered by a mime which I think is a very ironic thing because obviously it's a, it's a person who can't talk and he's you know it's just I just feel like there's little details like that that are just all over the edges of every scene that like everything is pre thought out to just kind of create for me what is a just a brilliant script and very uh, kind of poignant uh, look at a very lonely man who just cannot let his guard down and let others in basically well and uh, to get into that just a little bit talking about him being a lonely man it's not like he is lonely because nobody wants to be with him. He has decided to be this lonely person. For sure. You see, uh, there's a scene where he goes to uh, one of his lady friends who um, he actually, I believe, it's kind of insinuated that he pays for her rent to, mm-hmm. to stay there. Mm-hmm. And not only that, but they, they seem to have a sexual relationship. And, and that night... I believe that would make her a prostitute. Well, <laughs> that, yes, and that's the thing is that he he enters into these relationships that only he controls, which mm-hmm. is of course prostitution at its most basic form. Um, but if you notice that scene, he literally puts an end to everything that was going to happen that night the minute she started asking him questions mm-hmm. because that's what he doesn't want out of relationship with human beings, and it's what leaves him uh, to basically be by himself for the rest of his life. It's kind of like a very tragic. Uh, in my opinion, uh, you know, look at just kind of the lengths a human being will go to distance himself, despite the fact that I think he does genuinely wish he would kind of go through with that kind of stuff. Well, we'll get more into kind of the talk about him knowing things about the way the world works and why he's like the way he is a little more uh, later on in the review. Toussaint, what did you think about this film overall, kind of a general sense? Well, I've been wanting to watch this film for close to three years now, and it's only been this opportunity to watch it. Like, the first time I actually heard about the film was from Slavov's Zizek's... Uh, I have no idea what that is. He's like a like a crazy philosopher. He has this movie called um, The Pervert's Guide to Cinema, where he actually uses the closing scene from uh, from the conversation in one of his examples, and I've always... It's always been in my mind since then. Now, when you say the closing scene, do you mean the scene where he pretty much destroys his apartment? No, not no. that one. I'm talking about the one where he actually, this is going to be a spoiler, when he goes inside of the um, the suspected hotel room okay. and he flushes the toilet okay. and it overflows like that. That mm-hmm. was a really... It was very, uh, did anybody else get like a shiny vibe from it? Yeah, totally. The yes. blood elevator, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Which is weird because then, of course, that means that Kubrick might have seen it before he made the shiny. I mean, I guess I know it was in the book, but just the way that the this kind of music plays Stanley out. Stanley Kubrick fucking stealing things. Are you saying that Stanley Kubrick is a... 
is a hack. No, I would never <laughs> <What>? say that. <laughs> Sorry, continue. Okay. Um, I also was really interested in seeing this because I knew it was a spiritual uh, predecessor to Tony Scott's Enemy of the State, which I really enjoyed as well. Let's give high fives again. I love Enemy yeah. State too. Oh, woo! All right. Why are your hands so sweaty? What, <laughs> what happened? Shut up. That's just me. Shut up. <laughs> Amateur hour over here. All right. Um, Rookie. What else? Nervous. <laughs> Going off of what, what Nick said, um, I thought it was a really powerful like portrait of, of loneliness and paranoia from a man who just... he. He creates his entire business on knowing everybody else's business, mm-hmm. and that makes him too afraid to have any life or any like secrets of his own. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay, very good. And uh, Kenny, let's uh, hear what you thought about this film. <sighs> slow, slow, slow. This was a very slow movie. That would very, be correct. Very <laughs> slow movie. I mean, normally, normally this isn't my kind of bag particularly, but as, as the movie went on and it developed this character a bit more there there were some definitely interesting elements and aspects to this to this guy um the the whole paranoia thing is just kind of the beginning um i you know there are there are different parts in the movie when he, he lies about different things and i you know like you said nick um he he only kind of enters into relationships and it seems like he's got troubles throughout the whole movie in, in committing to anything. Everything has to be on his terms. Right. And and as soon as anybody starts kind of prodding him and asking questions, he, he gets very defensive about it. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, he's not like a textbook sociopath or anything like that. He seems like a pretty normal person who just has these crazy thoughts about the way the world works. For sure. And also, I mean, they the scene at the party about an hour or so into the film, that's you kind of do get to see him let his guard down and unfortunately it doesn't work out very well for him because it kind of blows up in his face but um i I think it's those kind of reactions that other people have that kind of caused him to bundle up he's also very religious which is interesting he kind of has a couple of outbursts when people like use the lord's name in vain he gets very offensive about it and very very upset especially um, when fredo uses it he gets really pissed <laughs> off yeah the, who's the guy he worked with what was fredo well, no that's john, not his name that's not his name john Cazal. yes or yeah. Cazale, who who is the character fredo in the first two godfather films right. where he's <laughs> the best known from gotcha. there's a great parallel there too when he goes to make confession because that is the yeah. only time when he can actually open up because right. he understands the bond that the priest is going to keep that a secret the same way that when he obviously goes on a surveillance job, he listens in, but he never actually repeats the information. Mm-hmm. So Even it's, then, it's, he it's, never really opens up. Right. Well, he does talk about the first time, I think it's even mentioned in the film, about um, A, his guilt in uh, dealing with the new project, and he makes allusions to something he'll explain later on about a past project that went wrong mm-hmm. that he's obviously harboring even more guilt about. Yeah, and and he's also uh, the other thing that stood out to me. He's just such an intense character. Everything he does, he he um, he just obsesses over and never stops thinking about it. And the 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 second woman, the the party in his apartment, and that woman starts coming on to him, and and they literally get to the point where they're like she's trying to have sex with him, and he is just obsessing still over the conversation and playing back and listening to it. And, He's just very intense and obsessive over everything he does. And the other thing that caught me off guard was 
the convention they were at yes. when he was like it, it was kind of showing for the first time how big he is in the industry and he, he he's very uncomfortable about it doesn't like people talk it's almost like a famous person who's not comfortable with fame he just, he just didn't deal with it so there's a lot of super interesting things about him going um off of something that you previously said said before about him being so paranoid like his paranoia and his need to control everything around him does like come from a place of self-preservation actually does serve him because when he's meeting up with Harrison Ford's character I can't remember his name who, play, who actually plays a somewhat pivotal role in the film yeah yep. I was really surprised about that it's like when he was supposed to hand off the documents hand off the tapes to the director he was supposed to, he was going to hand it off to him instead instead tries to like take it back from him he was having none of it yeah, yeah because it yeah. wasn't on his terms right. I was just like yeah yep I was totally blown away by Harrison Ford being in this movie because he's so young. And I saw him and I was like, damn, this guy looks like Harrison Ford. And then I actually had to look on IMDb and I was like, holy shit, it actually is Harrison Ford. Well, the other person who is actually the person who plays the director is played by Robert Duvall, which is, I, I thought was equally as unbelievable because yeah, he didn't un- get any billing in the film. Nope, he's completely uncredited, which is kind of crazy because it's not like a no-line role. It's actually... I he mean, has a couple lines of dialogue. That's what I mean. Like, it's not some kind of walk-on thing. It's uh, He's A, pivotal to the whole thing, mm-hmm. and B, it, he does have a couple scenes where he has to appear in. Uh, uh, but going, I want to really quickly touch on something you just said. Um, you're totally right about the whole his kind of unease at the convention, which is just a, another wonderfully kind of ironic note because the idea of becoming famous in the world of surveillance is literally yeah. your worst nightmare right. for somebody like Harry, at least, who doesn't want that fame because right. he knows exactly what that means, which is he's way more vulnerable to uh, this kind of intimacy that he just doesn't want from other people. Can we talk about how much of an asshole Bernie is? Like, I don't like Bernie at all. I don't even know who Bernie is. Bernie man. was the guy who eventually wiretapped him. Oh with yeah, the, with the right, with the, the, uh, the colleague, the guy a, who wanted to go into business. He with was him a total and... sycophant. Now, I hated that. Now, guy. Now let's okay. just back up a second here, where Bernie is the absolute opposite of Harry, where he is loving the fame he has from this industry. Mm-hmm. Yes, and he wants to kind of mooch off of Harry's fame. Yes, because he knows that he is a better person at this job than Harry is. And he is loving the fame of it. He loves being that person. You mean that Harry is a better person at the job? Harry is better at the job. Right, yes. Okay. Where Bernie is more loving of the fame aspect of it. He loves being the top person. And people are coming to his booth, right. coming to find out more about his next part, That's, yeah. what he's going to do. And Harry is totally not feeling it. And I feel like Harry is one of those people where he can be found out by somebody like Bernie. And he does not like it that option at all right no that's why it's the, the whole party is so awkward mm-hmm. because he keeps uh, d- uh pressuring him to review how he made that latest conversation and he's just not doing it but that doesn't stop him from actually playing the conversation and basically showing off his work so i think there was obviously some alcohol uh going on there well i mean there literally was because they're drinking <laughs> um but as far as like impairing harry's action because i feel like that's the first time like i said earlier that he lets his guard down and, of course, once it's revealed that Bernie had uh, put a, a pen in him that had a uh, bug in it, it's revealed at the worst kind of possible time for Harry to find that out during the party. And that's just kind of one of the most tragic moments of the entire thing because the, it's the first time you really see him actually open up. And, of course, he's going to regress even more now that he uh, has been kind of betrayed like that. Yeah. Um, Bernie is the kind of character who... like. Going back to him being like the total polar opposite of of Harry is like Harry is someone who 
is very reluctant to to show off the power that he has through his surveillance. Like whereas Bernie loves to show off his gadgets and loves to ridicule and make people feel small for the fact that he's able to take their most intimate secrets and just like trot them out into the spotlight. Mm -hmm. Like one of my favorite scenes in this film was when they were coming out from the convention, they were all piled into that uh I think it was a charger. It was like it was one of their cars. They got cut off yeah. by by a charger and like the one of the surveillance guys who was like driving their car like just called up like one of their associates and then pulled up alongside them and then basically rattled off all of their their specs as a person and i was just yeah. like that is like that that speaks to to the erosion of privacy and surveillance that goes on today like and that happened in like in 1974 so that was kind of like really chilling well and um kind of to go off of what you're saying about how that kind of goes off what was happening then as to what it is now I like that you were talking about the enemy of the state film made by Tony Scott and how that is kind of a continuation of this character, even though it's not really because they're different characters. They have different names, everything. You kind of see where things have gone from then when uh, his character in that movie, his name is Brill, talks about how the agency was and he always says back then he doesn't give an exact year and how it is now where you see the advancement of security and recording in that film and it's just it's just full on way more advanced than it was when the conversation came out. Mm. And at that point, like you cannot you you don't have any privacy. No matter who you are, where you are, they can get a conversation that you're having and you have nothing to you have no protection from yourself. Which is what I wanted to say about the character Harry, who I feel like that's the biggest part of the film for me with Harry, that he knows everything about this world and what the worst parts of it can be and he tries to distance himself so far from it even though he is probably one of the better parts of the reasons that how it it, it operates he has multiple locks on his doors he almost reminds me of the way jack nicholson is in as good as it gets of being ocd about his life of not being recorded he goes through all of these precautions and even when somebody tries to do a nice gesture for him like give him a birthday present he absolutely is not having it at all. He's trying to find out how they gave him that birthday present. Yeah. yeah. And not only that, but he's also, he's more upset at the fact that they somehow found out when his birthday was. Right. I think he even makes a line about how he didn't write that down on his original like application or something like mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. um, and it's also interesting to think that this came out in 1974. And I mean, I obviously, I haven't necessarily uh, listed the commentary or uh, read any interviews, but it does definitely seem like this had to have been some kind of reaction to the Watergate scandal. I was actually just going to talk about that. Yeah. Like, it, it wasn't um, <laughs> it wasn't necessarily, it was seen as a reaction to the Watergate scandal because the conversation came out almost two months, I believe, like, before Nixon actually resigned from from that. Okay. Because I was going to say it was like two years or so after the actual break-in, wasn't it? Yeah. And the, the very same technology that was used, like the same wiretapping technology that was used in Watergate was what was serendipitously used in the conversation. Not because Francis Ford Coppola like roped that in. It was like because like he actually talked to other security specialists and did research independent of that. And it's, it's one of those rare instances where it's not so much life in, imitating art or art imitating life but rather like art and life kind of like serendipitously coinciding with one another hmm. for sure well since we're already kind of talking more about harry and we got off 
on a little bit of a thing about the Watergate scandal, but let's talk a little more about Harry as a character, as this is totally a character study film, mm-hmm. completely looking into him. There's, there is somewhat of a plot to this film, but it's mainly focused on Harry Call and his life. What do you guys think of him as a character as he progressed through the film? Because you don't see really many changes throughout the film, which is surprising for a character study where you see the ups and downs, where he pretty much basically stays the exact same throughout the film, just events changed around him and like the different things. They don't really change his view, but they kind of change around his character. I feel like he became more and more like troubled almost i was gonna say i think there's actually more of a like a, like i said earlier a regression than there is like yeah a, a he, static he, uh, plateau. he got darker and he got a little more mysterious and if you compare the opening scene which is him literally doing a surveillance job and he's kind of on the top of the world as far as like he knows what he's doing he's got four guys out there he's very uh, confident and right and talkative yeah. and yeah he's piecing everything together or whatever but if you compare that to the hairy at the uh, at the very end of the movie, he's a man who was undone by one simple phone call, which is the after he finds out that he was basically set up for the uh, the couple's murder, he gets the phone call saying that you are being bugged, and we as the audience, including Harry himself, have actually no real reason to believe that that is true. Mm-hmm. It, it seems like there's a very real possibility that it's just actually just a empty threat. But he's become so undone by one simple phone call and a hangup that he destroys his entire apartment because of it. I feel like he actually, the whole movie is watching him become basically further and further removed from the conversation. Well, sorry. No, please go ahead. As soon as he starts to realize that he's dealing with a, a job in which it's going to po- uh, potentially harm the people that he's listening to, he this is right around the same part of the film where it starts to kind of depict him as a very religious man. And, and and you just start to realize the guilt that he has in the fact that what he's doing may result in these people ultimately dying. And he just unravels from there. And it's almost like he starts losing his mind by the end of the movie. He's just not quite all there. Yeah. Um, Harry seems like the kind of guy who is, like, like throughout the entire film, he's his nature is at odds with his intentions. Like he has his conscience. He doesn't want somebody to get hurt from what he does anymore. But at the same time, he looks at things from such a sterile, technical way. Like when he's going over the conversation, like like initially, and his his associate asking asking him, like, "What do you guys think they're talking about?" And I was like, "I don't care." I was like, "You're you're lowering the actual like technical quality of the recording like if you actually like paid attention to it like Mm -hmm. he doesn't care about the actual words as they're being like said he only cares about the quality of the actual tape yeah the more you uh talk about it uh sorry to go back to something that kenny said because i just thought of this but the more i actually think that the uh the undercurrent of religion is actually pretty interesting because what is religion if not being paranoid that somebody else is listening to your thoughts. Absolutely. <laughs> so I'm, I mean, I'm 100% with you on that. Yeah, so yeah. the idea that he is a religious man, because almost like he's acknowledging that there's, you know, just like the, the average person can't really comprehend how much they're being surveilled. If he's at the top of that, then I'm sure he, of course, is trying to figure out what's on top of him. And I think religion is just another extension of that. Well, and to, to that point, he's just always worried about anybody and everybody listening to him but it seems like he's totally willing to distance himself from people no matter what 
because of that very fact. And he doesn't want anybody to be able to hear him. He doesn't want anybody to be able to get into his business. Right. And he, he knows all about that because he is... And I feel like that's kind of an interesting part of this film that I didn't even think about the first time I watched it, or I guess the only time I watched it right now, was that this could be true for any profession, but because it's audio recording, you're way more aware of it than if you were the best at something else and you know what other another person who could be trying to get at that would be trying to be like i don't know but since it's audio surveillance it's just bumped up a thousand degrees and it's a it's crazy jumping off of your um religion parallel it's like the opening scene does open with a camera like peering down from on high on a on a uh, courtyard that looks almost like a diorama just from that scale but then it just like zooms in closer and closer just into these these people's like more intimate lives. It's very omnipresent. Yeah. Yeah. There, I was just going to say, there's so much irony in this movie and the fact that he is so paranoid about people listening in on him and knowing his details about his life when he's the best at what he does. As you were saying, Alex, I, I guess the same can go for, for anything. Once you become the top or the best of whatever it is you're doing, you instantly part of, part of what propels you to get to that point is worrying about others beating you and and it's just with this the irony is incredible how he's constantly worried about people knowing the details about his life well and knowing what it takes to get to that point too i mean you know exactly what it's like to bid at that point and he knows the the absolute worst parts of it and it's funny because in his professional life he is this giant who is major in the audio recording industry but in his personal life he tries to be as random as possible i mean do we even know if the woman who he sees early in the film, who he pays for her apartment, does she know anything about him other than his name? No, she doesn't even know his phone be- number. Because he, no, he no. lied to her. He yes. literally lied, not only about his age for some reason, which I was going to ask you guys. I don't know what that's all about. Well, he, but... he absolutely, that I found out through the film, is a complete pathological liar. He has no problem yeah. lying about anything or creating false truths. Well, and... she asked him at a certain point what he does for a living, and he just lied. He said he's a musician, mm-hmm. which I... I guess like he plays the saxophone but it's not yeah it's not what he does for a living but yeah he just flat out lied about it he also tells people that he does not have a phone which he obviously does so right because that's for his purposes only Mm -hmm. and obviously like you know of course he probably sees that device as something that's only for outgoing calls and not for incoming which is kind of a nice uh another detail i also wanted to say uh speaking of uh you guys talking about how like you know he's propelled by uh, his worries, you know, to the top of his career or whatever. So I think that means we should probably retitle the film uh, The Conversation or The Unexpected Virtue of Insecurity. <laughs> <laughs> am I right or am I right? Boom. That was a Birdman joke for anybody I know it was, who uh, did not get the right. And if anybody's interested, we probably will be hitting on the uh, 2015 Academy uh, Awards God. that just happened. We're going to save it for later uh, in the episode. Yeah. Keep keep your pants on. Holy God shit. damn it, I hate that movie. Oh, no, you don't. <laughs> Wow. The yeah. longer it's been since I've seen it. That's okay. okay. Well, anyway, that's fine. That's for another time. All of our listeners We're... just turn the podcast yeah. off now. <laughs> no, you'd be surprised how many people actually hate Birdman. And that's totally fine because, especially now that it won Best Picture, now the hate's really going to come in on it. Yeah. That's totally fine. Anyway, let's get back. So, to... getting back to this film, let's talk a little more about what 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 should we talk about, Nick? The, te- the technical aspects. Yeah, I, the technical aspects. I have a few I, I, notes here, actually. Please go ahead. Um, I mean, for one thing, I love the production design. There's a lot of times when Harry will walk by a door that that's uh, marked private, which of course you can actually see in real life. I mean, that's just kind of the same kind of signs that are posted along any building. But it's those little touches that I feel like he made sure were in the shot, so that way he's just constantly 
surrounded by that notion. I also really like the uh, the score. It's a it's a piano kind of song. Um, it's a re- kind of recurring motif. And when you think about piano, that's a solo activity. So it does kind of tie into that uh, idea of a, of the band just. And in you know me, I'm a huge fan of scores. Like I feel like the score is way more important to a film than people usually give it credit for. For sure, a good score can make or break a film that may or may not be good. So. Yeah. Uh, I'm I'm totally with you on the score and the the idea of a solo piano playing through. Yep. I think a score the score in this film particularly is really important through the scenes when you see Harry by himself, but also in the scenes when you see him with other people as it kind of mirrors him how he's feeling in that time. And you don't really think about it when you're watching the film and not thinking no. about the score that's happening. But when you look deeper into it, you totally see what you're talking about. For sure. And also, um, well, another interesting thing about the score itself is, besides the fact that it's kind of it's a piano track, which you know subtly ties into the theme of the film, uh, if you really pay attention, the more the film goes on, the less piano there is, and the more it's actually being replaced by the audio conversation that he recorded in the beginning of the film. You literally start to hear less of an actual film score. And it gets to the point where by the end of the film, you are literally just hearing the uh, the audio conversation that's essentially going to be his undoing uh, over scenes that are just him walking through a city. I mean, you know, where you would normally put a film score mm-hmm. is uh, his kind of his nightmare. I guess that's since we're talking about it now, I'll make my comment about it because I wanted to bring up the the overplaying of the original conversation, which you hear earlier in this movie. You hear it multiple times, but it, I feel like it's it it merits being played multiple times because you have different opinions about it when you're hearing it. I feel like a film, there are films that do things over and over again and you see it over the same thing over and over again. Um, the film Vantage Point did that and you saw the same scene play out seven different times. Sure. A and lot it, of people didn't like the movie. Uh, Rashomon for babies. <laughs> yeah. Um, I was going to say a lot of people didn't like the movie Spring Breakers because it, unfortunately for them, I love the film, but played the same exact sound clips over and over just because it was an art house film and and i think that those sometimes do get a little old in films but i never thought that playing that over in this film was out of place at all especially when you consider the idea that um, every time it's played i would say for the most part uh, there's new information added to the recording. The very mm-hmm. first time you hear the entire conversation played out, you can barely understand what they're talking about. Every time they replay it, I think it's kind of indicative of how far along uh, Harry has gotten into uh, the actual programming and rec- uh, kind of parsing out all the four different mixes of the recording. And uh, by the very end of it, that's when you can hear it the clearest, which is, of course, for Harry himself, because the ironic thing about the conversation is that he completely misinterprets the crucial line, which is uh, the woman at one point says, he'd kill us if he got the chance, which he thinks means that they're going to, uh, which, no, sorry. He thinks that that means that he, um, the man that they're uh, kind of worried about, which the, the, the director, director yeah. is going to kill, us, uh, kill them if he gets the chance. What he doesn't realize is the line actually means that they're going to kill him because they're not going to give him the chance. So it's that idea of how like words become, uh, you know, just have different meaning once you have an entire context. You know what I really liked about the actual conversation in the conversation? Mm-hmm. What, what you're talking about as that the, the sections are revealed as the film goes on, that even by the, the end of the film, you don't necessarily know the motivations and and the the context for why they're actually going to kill this man 
Like you, you, you're in the middle of a conversation. You catch a conversation in the middle of it, and but, they. But here's the thing, and that's why we kind of had to make this a spoiler-led episode if we were going to talk about this film more in depth, is that you think the entire film they're going to kill the woman or the man who is making the conversation, when in reality, this whole conversation was set up to be recorded by Harry and to be played for the director because they're going to kill him, and that's why Harry was used throughout this entire film. He was an important part of the film process for the director to hear the recording he makes. So he thinks they're going to kill him. So he goes to the hotel that they're going to be at. And it's just that whole part of the film is what makes me love this movie even more, more than I originally did. I see what you're saying. Yeah. So you didn't think that because Nick didn't think so too. It was just no. something that for me, at least like, like I said in the beginning of my kind of section is that I just, I really respond to the, the character of Harry, not so much the plot. So I will admit I didn't even put that much thought, not that because that much thought should be put into it, but because I, my favorite scenes are those uh, quote unquote slow party scenes that I really mm-hmm. just like to see Harry out of his element. But those are my least favorite parts, which is totally, <laughs> but that's why I, I like having these conversations because then you enhance uh, the scenes that I wasn't even paying, per, you know, particular amount of attention to. So it makes me like the film even more. But do we all kind of agree with what I'm saying about that? Yes, he was definitely, that he, he was being up. played the entire film, which I think makes him feel empty because his whole job is now it, it, it's being used for other purposes than he wants it to be. Right. And I feel like he cannot deal with that. Yep. And I also think really quick to, as your point, I do think it's pretty much implied that the reason for the uh, inevitable murder or just the, why that the director would be mad is just simply because it's an affair, but it could be more than that, obviously. Well, and also Harrison Ford's character is totally in on it. So Yes, he was pretty much the linchpin in setting the whole thing up. And that's, I think, of course, speaks to that earlier scene mm-hmm. when Harry won't give him the thing because he's smarter than he looks. And unfortunately, he kind of let his guard down at the end and that's what... Uh... It was an affair and a menage a trois. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead, Kenny. Oh, no, I, I didn't. I mean, the lead on that I had something to say. I... Oh, I'm totally sorry. No, you, you guys well, this are... This is awkward. You, yeah. <laughs> you, you guys are well above the kind of stuff that I was looking into into this movie. You're, you're above my pay grade at this point. Oh, well, there was an entire yeah. scene you guys were just talking about. I'm pretty sure I got up to make popcorn during so. <laughs> <laughs> as I As I prefaced, this movie was slow. Yes, yeah. it, it, no, I mean, I love it, and I can even... I don't necessarily think for me like slow is a bad thing but I can totally see how it was one of those I haven't seen it in like three or four years so mm-hmm. when I recommended it I kind of forgot how uh, <laughs> how those party scenes played out now of course when I rewatched it that made me love it even more but I was I was literally sitting there going oh my god I can't believe I, I picked this out as the, our first one but but a lot of character study films are slow in the way they're put together one of my favorite character study films of all time is There Will Be Blood starring Daniel Day-Lewis and if somebody just sat down thinking they were going to be entertained for two and a half hours and watch that movie, they probably would commit suicide before it's over. I mean, it's <laughs> it's it's the slowest movie ever. So it, it goes nowhere, but it's a great film. So is he just good for those slow stinkers? Because I, I watched Lincoln and I hated Lincoln. It was the same well, way. Daniel Day-Lewis is definitely a 100% person who a film is based on his character he doesn't usually play in films that are based on some Except great plot. For there will be blood, which had a great direction to match his. Uh... That is true, but as we've talked about before, I feel like he's a better character than that's a, 
like he's a better character than the story is. I'm more interested in his character than about the plot of the story. I agree with that. I think that's also why the script doesn't have that much dialogue, like because it's just a focus in on uh, that character. But, but obviously, that's a whole other. But that's kind of the same sort of thing as happens in the conversation. Even though there is more dialogue, like in the party scene, there is more dialogue. You don't see a lot of dialogue between Harry and other people. Even Stan, uh, who is played by Fredo. John Cazale. <laughs> yeah, I keep forgetting his name. I just can't do it. They don't have very much dialogue together, even though they're basically the two main employees from his company. Whenever John Cazale tries to say more and talk more about the job, he brushes him off and almost fires him and basically does. Yeah, it's... Uh, that's. That whole convention scene is one of my favorites, and uh, see, that was my least favorite scene of the film. So I know it, I just I, I don't for for me at least it was just I just found it funny and just almost thrilling to see Harry completely out of his element and trying to navigate this awkward tension of people want to talk to me and I don't want to say anything to them. Not only that, but I actually I was not like cracking up, but I actually find that whole kind of to be like a black comedy. I mean when uh, people are trying to sell him on uh, some of his stuff and they're like, oh, you know, use my equipment for free. I just thought that was great because he's not having any of that. He's much better than all of that. <laughs> so does anybody else have anything they want to bring to the table about this film? Um, no, I feel like we pretty much covered it. Okay, so let's get a rating from everybody. Nick, why don't you start since you're the one who over the top loves this film. I do. I am. Um... For me, it's uh, pretty much just off my like my all-time favorite list. So I give it four and a half out of five. Ooh. I, yeah, I'm a huge, huge fan. I can understand why somebody might, but um, so yeah, I give it four and a half out of five, and I would uh, recommend that somebody watch it. So you don't have the Walking Phoenix kind of moving finger as in Gladiator. <laughs> Not sure if you're on the fence. No, no, I am. I am no uh, Roman in this. I'm just a. Uh, <laughs> I give it a yay, and uh, just be prepared for something a little slower than you're used to. But I think by the end of it, even if you you know you don't love it, I feel like you'll get something out of it. Very good, Tucson. How about you? I would give it a three out of five. I okay. really enjoyed it. I thought that the like Kenny, I thought that the beginning plot was like really plotting and where is this all going? But eventually, the payoff was well worth it. If you like really enjoy. Um, deliberate, ominous films like character studies, then you're really going to enjoy this. So would you give it a yay or a nay for people going to see this? I would I would give it a yay. Yeah, I would All definitely right. recommend it. Right on, sir. Kenny, I have kind of an idea what you're going to say, but let's hear it. <laughs> yeah, I, I hate to be that guy, but I'm going to give it a <laughs> so, nay. So okay, just... I was that the, last week at Kingsman. Yeah. I... And I think that's one of the best parts of this show about Film Tank is that we want to have different perspectives. We don't want to have three of the same people sitting over jacking off a film and all hating the film. We want to have different perspectives on it, and I'm glad that we do. There was, was before graphic. midnight. There was a... what, what did you say? I said that that was graphic. Jacking off a film? Well, it, it's not that graphic. It was a joke. It's, it was a bad joke because I didn't get it, and if I don't get it, nobody gets it. Let Kenny oh. talk, guys. I see. <laughs> I'm sorry, Kenny, I'm, you were saying. I'm, I'm pretty sure I stated on the last episode Alex is an over-opinionated asshole. Well, <laughs> going to come up again. That may be the case. If, if that's the case, that everybody thinks that, then I'm sure we'll get emails about my that. My rating, I, I'd give it a two and a half out of five to okay. go along with my nay. It, it was slow to begin with, but it, it did hook me at some point, and it developed into something that was worth watching after I got my popcorn. Maybe that's <laughs> 
Um, but just in the end, it, it wasn't enough to really make me feel like I ever need to see it again. And I don't, I don't know that it's maybe, maybe it's because I'm not super into older movies. I don't even think that's what it is. Cause I like older movies too. It's, I know that's a very shallow review, but, um, it very much has that old feel to it and just didn't do enough story wise to, to just cut to the, I'll cut straight to it. There wasn't enough shit blowing up for me. <laughs> it's a didn't. film that could not be made today. Can we agree yeah, on that? Yeah. Like not like well, it would uh, make uh, sense. If no, it was made no. Today. Aside from aside from like wiretapping and things like that, it's like just the pacing and and the way that it that that's plotted out. It depends out. which film you're watching. I mean, yeah. I'm just I've seen quite well, a few films of this pacing. I know. Uh, from what I've seen, this movie was received very well back then. It yeah. won a couple of Oscars. If I no, I think it was, nominated. was it nominated. I know it was nominated for best picture. It lost to Francis Ford's other film, like I, like <laughs> I, I mentioned earlier. But it won the uh, the Palme d'Or, like I said earlier, which is the kind of most prestigious award any yeah. film could win. The other thing that has happened with this film, which is from what I think you told me before, the opposite of uh, another Gene Havoc and Heckman film from this kind of era, which was the French Connection. It, it is the conversation has kind of grown in people's opinion over time where the French connection has kind of gone down. Yeah. There's a lot of uh, William Friedkin uh, kind of detractors out there who, who is the director, the director of the French connection. Correct. Mm-hmm. And whereas I feel like a lot of people that I talk to in uh, some more online circles of, you know, a lot of cinephiles and whatnot, they talk about the conversation in very high esteem, but uh, I can totally understand why somebody well, would love it to go along with what Toussaint said. I just, I don't think that if this movie was made today, it it wouldn't be res- it wouldn't be respected the way it was back when when this was made in 1974. It just I, I don't feel probably a, a lot like myself. I I don't know that outside of a few groups, maybe I don't think most people would give this movie the time of day nowadays. It was a film of its time, going off of the momentum of like. The coincidence of Watergate, it was definitely a film of its Well, time. speaking on Watergate, a film that I can't believe is getting brought up two weeks in a row, but All the President's Men, uh, a film of that kind of time about Watergate, hmm. I feel like if that movie came out today, I, I the, the pacing in that film is very slow as well. And I Well, it's it technically, no, I, I would disagree there because I would say that it's not a slow film, but okay. that is a very, very singular wavelength. Like, if you are not on it, then it's going to seem slow, but that's a whereas I would I love the conversation and I would call it slow. Mm-hmm. All the presence then is for all intents and purposes a thriller because you are literally chasing this lead despite the fact that you already know where it's headed. But I feel like it's slow in how I feel Zodiac is slow. There are a lot of things happening in the film, but I feel like if you ever get left off the train at any part of, of the film, you're not going to be able to get back on. You can see that. Getting to my rating, I guess. Uh, my rating has actually gone up a half star since we've been talking about it. The more things we've talked about, the more I've thought about things. And I originally gave this a three, and I'm going all the way up to three and a half. Whoa. Uh, it's a big... And I'm going to definitely give this yay. Uh, I When I first viewed this film, it's one of those films that I feel like you cannot give this a rating after five minutes after you view the film. Mm-hmm. You can. I mean, you can say how you originally thought about it, but it's a film you need to think on a little bit. Because it's not a film that's like a popcorn film, like an Avengers film or something like that. What? What are you shaking your head about? I, I just looked at Kenny with the popcorn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's exactly popcorn. why I got I up to even, get popcorn. This, I didn't this. even mean to do that. I'm just so smart, guys. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's debatable. But, well, I'm not smart. That was kind of the joke. Yeah. Actually kind of a dumb schmo, but oh, well. 
But yeah, I definitely recommend this film to anybody to go see it, even though if you've listened to this review and you've heard about the things, I feel like this is a movie that if you even know what's happening towards it, watching the entirety of the film, you can still appreciate what you're watching. I actually think it benefits if you know the endings. Like okay. That's why I liked it, I think, even more my second time, because instead of thinking that it was going to deliver something, I you know was hoping it would, I already knew what it was going to do, and therefore I kind of noticed some other details about you know some of the more character moments and stuff. It builds on revisits. Right. Just start at like minute 45. Just, <laughs> just, just cut the first half off. Uh, You'd be all right. A minute 45 or an hour 45? 45 minutes. Just, oh, 40, just 45 minutes I in. Gotcha. Just clear halfway through the movie. Well, then you wouldn't really understand the second half. Well, so. if, people listen, if people are listening to our show now... And oh. then just cut through the first 45 I minutes. Guess. We're giving them a cliff notes. We're, yes. Okay. We're doing you a favor. We're not we're trying doing. to be that kind of a show that tells you what parts of movies you can skip. That's no good. Yeah. If you enjoyed listening to this review, and we'll obviously have lots of uh, reviews on every episode we're going to have a review, uh, next week's episode is going to include the film Whiplash. We're going to do a review of that film. A much more current film is that was released in 2014 and won two Oscars over the previous weekend. Um, it, I wouldn't necessarily call it a fast-paced film, but it definitely has a faster pace than the conversation does. And I feel like it's a bullet train compared to yeah. <laughs> the conversation. I also feel like that is a, um, even though it is for the most part a character study in a way, it's there a- is a definite plot to the film. Yep, for sure. So speaking of what we've been doing for the last week, we've been watching the Oscars. We could talk more about that, but let's get a little re- week in review. Is uh, it's going to come a staple of this show, I think. Nick, what we've been viewing in the last week, and what do you want to tell the audience about? I'm literally looking up my letterbox account right now. Well, apparently uh, he doesn't remember what he's been looking at in the last week, so that's no, good. I, I see quite a few films that I'm not. I'm not always sure what I want to bring up, <laughs> but uh, I'm looking at one right now. Actually, speaking of Whiplash, I watched a film called Grand Piano, which is currently on Netflix Instant right now. It was written by Damien Chazelle, who is the director and writer of Whiplash, so it wasn't his. Uh, you know, uh, he did not direct this film, but it's a very, uh, it's weird because it's kind of, it definitely touches on some similar themes because it is a musical thriller, if there is such a genre, because it is about a uh, concert pianist uh, played by Elijah Wood, who... Oh, wow. Yeah, I know. It's, okay. It's bringing him out of the attic, I guess. <laughs> and um, it he plays a very kind of nervous young uh, genius who has not played in public in over five years because of an incident that had happened during it. Does he have some sort of, is there something going on that is the reason to why he's such a great piano player, but he also has like bad social skills or something like no, that? No, no, he no. He's just a... He, it was an episode of Criminal Minds, okay? No. Don't, don't, don't scoff at it. Oh, boy. Uh, and so... <laughs> he's sorry, a great piano Minds. player, but... Yeah. Criminal Mind, it just makes me shake. Um, That's fine. You don't have to... It's a single episode show, no, just yeah. like a lot of shows are this time this day and age so um so anyway uh oh so elijah wood plays a a like i said a concert pianist genius who basically was he is in this film the the greatest piano player in the world and five years ago better than mozart i i don't know they didn't get that far oh okay you didn't use that caveat yes so five okay that's fine (laughs) So five years ago, okay. when um, prior to when the film takes place, he had a very famous performance in which he um, 
so I, I don't even know if they alluded to it or if it's just not a good film that I forgot because I'll get into that in a minute. But something happened during his last performance that has basically uh, caused him to go into a complete regression and not want to perform in public anymore. So we moved to present day and he um, he decides to agree to a another performance where he's going to tackle something called the unplayable piece because it's so uh, confusing and you know uh, that seems like kind of a big leap to go from not wanting to play anything to play an un- know, un- unplayable piece I'm, uh, you're gonna I'm gonna be right there with you in a minute because I'm, I'm not going to have good things to say about this film. <laughs> okay um, but uh, so once he agrees to do this, he gets there. The whole film is basically once he sits down to start playing for a uh, for this entire hall. I mean, this is since he's the best, obviously. It's, it's a huge concert hall. You know, only the most wealthiest and whatnot are there to watch him and their tuxes and whatnot. And all of a sudden, when he sits down to play the piece, uh, but not just the piece, he's doing a whole concert with a symphony and everything. Um, he sees in his uh, musical liner notes that. Uh, somebody has written in them and somebody is watching him from the balcony and will kill him if he plays a single wrong note. Well, that seems kind of harsh. Yeah, no, it's, <laughs> it's very harsh. And uh, I love these kind of ridiculous thrillers. Like when they have this kind of setup where it's like, oh, I've never really seen that before. And I want to see... Yeah, but this sounds almost like an 88 minutes kind of thing, that bad right. Al Pacino thriller. No, and I saw that too and I did not like that, but I'll certainly give it the benefit of the doubt because I want films like this to succeed because I eat it up when they're good. Mm-hmm. Um, but unfortunately this, I mean, I, I gave it two out of five stars on Letterboxd. I wouldn't say I hated it, but there were so many uh, gaps of logic that I could not go along with. And you are a person who can go along with gaps of logic usually. Exactly. So. No, but this is one that literally infuriated me. There were moments when he was allowed during his performance, since there is an orchestra also performing at the same time, uh, the literally the killer who's voiced by John Cusack because he gets him on uh, an earpiece. <laughs> uh, literally, the killer would tell him things like, uh, "You can't leave the stage. You can't call for help." You know the the standard rote uh, thriller cliches. Right. Although, like there were many times when he got up, left the stage, went to his dressing room, went to during the performance, uh, went to the backstage, went to the. And, and but, no, but, but did he clear these things? Was it like in speed where he had to tell the person what was happening? No, it was in so no way. I, I know you have these rules, but this guy just got shot and we need to get him off the bus. What was no, the it, speed from speed? Uh, like what? Like how like fa- 70 miles an yeah, hour or something? You have to keep on playing the piano yeah, at 70 miles per hour or it'll explode. It's, no. the, it's the best because there's a totally coked out Dennis Hopper in his, like, <laughs> his after rehab stage, but you can tell he's still doing drugs yeah. in that film. It's just great. Right. Well, this <laughs> film had uh, similar like crazy stuff like that, but it just made no sense because it was completely inconsistent in its own internal logic. And for that reason, I couldn't go along with it. I also laughed out loud and not in a good way at the film's final scene, which I'm not going to spoil for anybody who's listening to it, uh, to this, but basically something happens in which uh, they reveal why this killer does not want him to play a wrong note. There is an actual valid reason. It's a stupid reason, but this isn't just some kind of like stupid prank or whatever. Okay. There is an actual uh, explanation. I think that's actually what made it worse because it tried to apply logic to something so stupid. Um, and I would have preferred it much more if it wasn't just kind of like a Phantom of the Opera thing where it was just a figure that you never saw. But anyway, but the final scene is this weirdly anticlimactic, empty gesture of a scene in which he, I can't even explain it, but if you've seen it, you know what I'm talking about. And probably, it's only 80 minutes. I, I probably still recommend that people check it out because it's, 
not the worst film I've seen. Um, and I will give it praise for one thing, which is that actually the visuals are very, very good. There were some great shots in this film, and that's pretty much the only thing that kept me watching throughout the whole thing. Um, and I just want to talk about one other film really quick. I saw the movie uh, Still Alice, which was in theaters, um, which, of course, Julia... Julia Moore just won the Oscar for. Yes, she did, and I saw it right before the ceremony, just to, so I could weigh my two cents in on that. Um, this was a film that I liked, but far from loved. It was... Uh, I definitely don't think she should have won. Uh, nomination's fine, but there's really nothing in it that she... Uh, for me, the best part of the movie was actually Kristen Stewart... Uh, so I definitely don't think that was very deserved. Wait, what? Did she change her face at all? No. Kristen Stewart? No? That's not really what predetermines an actor's ability. I'm kidding. I'm, I'm, I'm totally well, kidding. Well, Kristen Stewart's known for her blank <laughs> yes, look. Right, so. because she's known for the Twilight movies, but I actually think she's a great actor when she's in good material. She has had some other clunkers other than the Twilight movies. I'm not saying that that's not true. I'm I saying... actually don't mind Kristen Stewart at times. <laughs> Yeah, I, uh, there, there have been movies where I like her. I was just totally, I know. totally throwing that out. I think I'm she's just, great in the film Panic Room, which she's she's yeah, twelve or thirteen years old when that film I, came out. She's and the she, daughter, right? Yeah. Yes, I forget about that. Mm. She's uh, she's also great in the movie uh, Adventureland, which I was a big fan of. Boom! See, look right see. here. Um, so no, she was the best part of this film for me because she's actually, in my opinion, delivering a much more subtle performance than Julianne Moore, who. Does good, but it's just a little too, uh, I want to say, scream and shouty. Kind of what we expect from a very Oscar-baity performance. Uh, I will say this, though. The, the central heart of that film is the relationship between the daughter and the mother, the Kristen Stewart and Julianne Moore. And because, for me, that, that was as good as it was, uh, that's pretty much why I actually ended up liking the film. I thought the film itself was structured in a horrible way. It was basically just your average, like, commercial for Alzheimer's. I mean, they go through every single step you would already expect to be in it, like the pre-diagnosis jitters and the routine medical tests and then the heartbreaking family conversation and so on and so forth. But because uh, the relationship between uh, the Kristen Stewart character and the Julianne Moore character uh, was just pointed enough, I would actually recommend it to others. So that's what I saw this week. Very good, Tucson. Uh, now that Nick's had his two-hour conversation <laughs> about what he's seen this week, let's hear what you brought to the table this week. Okay, I haven't seen any other films this past week. I can't I can't think of anything off the I top of my head. I thought you just saw one, one yesterday. I just saw... Um, what did I see last yesterday? I thought you went to see Malcolm X last night. Oh yeah, I just I've I've seen Malcolm X before. I really enjoyed. That, that's it. okay. We can count. You can count movies. This whole segment is supposed to be films that you have viewed in the last week. Okay. And they can be new or old. Okay. So. Yeah, I haven't seen Malcolm X since I was in high school. And looking back and actually having seen the film yesterday, I don't know how that film got played in my high school. <laughs> well, you like, prob- you probably had to watch it in like. Four separate class sessions because isn't it like yeah. three and a half hours? Yeah, like yeah. Le- a legitimate three and a half hours. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It was it was kind of wearing at me at the end, but uh, I thought uh, Denzel Washington was exceptional in that role. I think that um, outside of the the quality of the film, I know that um, Nick was not a particularly a fan of a lot of parts of it, and there were some parts that were kind of like really slow for me. I thought it was a, a an effective biopic, mm-hmm. in that I actually did like some. Um, some pre-research before going to the film again, like, cause I already knew some stuff more than like in high school. Like that Malcolm X had red hair. Yeah. That Malcolm X had red hair. Yeah. Um, 
and it was it was pretty much a, a point for point very loyal um retelling of uh, the autobiography of Malcolm X. Now I will say one thing about the film and I've never seen Malcolm X so I can't mm. claim to have seen it. I do know that in the film that came out in 2014 called Selma which was nominated for best picture uh they pretty much say Malcolm X was this person who was ruining the civil rights movement because he was wanting to pretty much show physical emotion instead of just showing mental emotion and wanting to kind of hurt people who are hurting. So, so in this film, let's just say this, do they portray that or do they try to get away from that? They actually do portray that he is set at odds from the rest of the civil rights uh, activists at the time. He wasn't the only one who was an advocate of meeting force with force or Mm -hmm. motivating like the, the, uh, black African-American diaspora to move back to Africa, whether it's like physically or mentally or intellectually in some way. But um, he was definitely one of the most prominent and most uh, um, loud and vitriolic about it. So would you recommend this? I, it's three and a half hours. You gotta, you have to, you have to commit if you want to see this film. I think that if you are committed to um, learning more about black history and just like seeing one of, Spikes. Wow. Way to guilt people. No, 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 no. We are we are recording this in February, anyway, so it makes sense. Like it is Black seeing, History Month. Seeing so. one of uh, <laughs> Spike Lee's um, better films, like one of the last good films he made. Okay, uh, have you seen Inside Man? I haven't seen that yet. What about the Twenty Fifth Hour? No. Yeah, um, but those are like literally the two exceptions to his <laughs> modern day career. Yeah. Okay. He was way more prolific back in the eighties than the nineties. Yeah. But I, I was I was wanting to see if he would compare them to those films and, and I'm sure you who have seen those films would say that you liked them better than Malcolm X. I do, but let me just uh, make sure the listeners know I do not like biopics at okay. all. Um, it takes a lot for me to like one. It has to be something like Amadeus or the social network which just takes incredible liberties with the uh, quote unquote source material. What about Inside Lewin Davis? That's basically a biopic. That's the furthest thing from a biopic. Well, that's one way to look at it, but that's okay. Wait, are you being serious? Or? I'm kind of being... Are you, are you being serious? That's not a yeah. biopic about, about the character Lewin? There's no Lewin. <laughs> Lewin Davis is not a real person. It is okay. The the main character in the film. I'm sorry. No, I know. I'm saying the main character who is. Lewin. I've only seen it once. It no, was a long time ago. I'm just saying Lewin Davis does not exist in real life. There is okay. a character named not a character. Excuse me. There is a real life person named Dave Von Ronk. The character in the film who is played by Oscar Isaac. What is his name in the film? Lewin Davis. He. But he's he just not made a, me feel like an asshole saying that he, that wasn't his name in the film. Come no, on, man. The I, dream is collapsing. Yes. That's not what I, I <laughs> thought, Second time. I guess I... Sorry, I, I misheard you. I thought you said that that's who the film was based on, but he's not a real person. Okay, I'm sorry. I, I said bi- biopic, as I said that incorrectly, okay. where Inside Lewin Davis is a character study about the right. character film. And would you agree with that or not? No, I agree with that. But Okay. Right. Yeah. I, I don't like biopics, which are films that are... Uh, character-driven uh, movies about real-life figures. Okay, but Inside Lewin Davis is a character-driven film. Not about a real-life figure. But not about a real-life figure. So therefore, for me, at least, it's not a biopic because okay. it's not a biography. That's where that comes from. I'm glad we got into this because we're getting to separate the two things for the <laughs> listeners, which is good because we're learning along with them. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. Um, so I... Uh, yeah, so I, I do not like biopics whatsoever, and like I said, unless they 
have the kind of audacity to really go off script uh, of the real life and can actually say something interesting and not just regurgitate history. Uh, that's what I really get into. Unfortunately for me, Malcolm X fell into that camp. And very unfortunate f- uh, for that film, it went from a very, in my opinion, bland biopic into a hilarious propaganda film. Yeah, it did. Yeah, it did. I know the 90s were a different time, but uh, seeing <laughs> these black and white images and a, a new narrator to the film, because before it was previously narrated by Denzel, uh, but seeing this narrator talk over these black and white images about you know the progress and how much uh, Malcolm X was uh, you know uh, influential in the movement and what which are things that we could have already guessed from the movie. It just became a weirdly ham-fisted message about Hi, Malcolm X. Yeah, and then of course it descends into that god awful final scene in a modern Jeez. day classroom in which all these kids stand up and yes shout I'm Malcolm X because that's what people do and that's how <laughs> we get our I mean it reminded me I it reminded me of the movie Starship Troopers in the very beginning when you see the propaganda war film and you see uh, the soldiers report for duty and all of a sudden it cuts to a seven year old boy who uh, literally pokes his head out of the crowd of all these male adult male soldiers and he goes I'm ready for battle and all the soldiers crack up because it's so adorable that's what that ending came across by as. any means necessary would you like to know more exactly so <laughs> well i think we know from this conversation then that nick hates black people so that's good <laughs> wow i'm glad nick how could you <laughs> wow thank you so much for that <laughs> anyway why don't we move on <laughs> well did, did, did we get a yay or nay from you did did you say yes or no would you say would you say just say yes or no which should people see this movie you should i, I i'd recommend you see the movie okay. i mean I at least like see it, it once Okay. Yeah. If you have three and a half hours to spare. Yeah. All right, Kenny. What Take about you? Let's 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 hear. What have you been viewing here in this um, last uh, week? I only actually watched one movie, and uh, my problem with the conversation. Oh, sorry. I take that back. I watched two. I already <laughs> forgot I watched the conversation. Uh, contrary to the conversation, a, a movie where lots of shit was blowing up. I watched Fury. Um, the other day when we were over here, I borrowed it from Alex. I was in my top five of 2014. Yeah, so uh, just a just a good movie. I'm a I'm a huge fan of uh, that kind of stuff. Obviously, as as, I, as I've made very obvious. Um, but outside of that, more more than anything, I've watched a lot of TV this mm-hmm. week. Uh, to say I'm late to the party on this one isn't uh, just a severe understatement, as I think it's only been on air for 26 years. I've really fallen into The Simpsons all of a sudden. <laughs> oh, okay. Tell me about this Simpsons. <laughs> Canyon Nero. I was wondering where you were going with that, like the 700 Club or something. Yeah, <laughs> no. Like I said, to say I'm late to the party on this one is a, is a severe understatement. I, I It's not that I've never liked The Simpsons. I just never really cared to go out of my way to watch it. They're always there. Yeah, it's always on, and if it's on, I'll watch it, but I never make an appointment to watch it. Um Maybe it's because growing up I was just really into South Park. I, I don't know, and South Park was always way more over the top and a little more risky and controversial than the it's Simpsons. kind of how Family Guy is now with Simpsons too. Well, and I'm glad you said that because Family Guy is well uh, from the time Family Guy came on. I was always a much bigger fan of Family Guy than the Simpsons, but I don't know. All of a sudden now I've fallen into the uh, Simpson trap, and I definitely feel overall um, there are even seasons uh, other than episodes of family guy in South park that are more well-written than Simpsons. But overall, like if you look at the grand landscape of all of those series put together by themselves, 
I feel like The Simpsons is just a terrifically written show. I was going to say, I think a lot of listeners just turned our program off because uh, one of the most heralded, if not uh, the one that shows up on every top five list, is the golden age of The Simpsons. Uh, right. Television of all time, and seasons four and five specifically, are among the best things ever written on TV. Well, that's kind of where I was going, where if you look at the grand landscape, The Simpsons is a terrifically written show. It even has episodes now. If you watch it, they are amazingly written. And I think that's the problem that some people have with episodes that are current, and I haven't seen all of them. I stopped watching The Simpsons regularly 10 years ago. (laughs) Um, That they have a lot of episodes that go back to things that happened in episode 249. Mm -hmm. And if you hadn't seen that episode, you have no fucking idea what's going on. So, But uh, it's just a series that keeps on giving, especially if you look at the years from like 1993 to 1998. Oh, man. So much good happening. Well, luckily, the FXX channel shows five hours a day of the simpsons mm-hmm. and then that's did any of you watch the every simpson ever marathon at all i did not on? okay Don't i watched cable. a few of them i was just curious oh. how long did that last for how long was it it oh i i want to say it went for over a week i mean it was literally every simpson episode ever in a row and oh. uh, chronological order of when they aired so it's how and, there, and there's been is. what 600 something episodes of that show i get, i want to say there's been over 500 over 500 I okay for a fact i don't i know. remember the 300th episode because i was still i've seen every episode up until episode 350 i think i'm going I'm to uh, is that the one with tony hawk uh, i can't remember specific episode say, numbers that's, that's yeah. getting really in depth um, I know I stopped watching The Simpsons every episode a little bit after the Who Shot Mr. Burns uh, played out. I love yeah. that episode. Yes. Yeah. There were a lot of just great episodes. And to your point, Kenny, I mean, I feel like you can watch any episode and it could be great, but at the same time, you might not know what's going on. What episodes did you see of it that you thought were exceptional? I just want uh, to make sure I really quickly point out I was right, and there have been 566 episodes. Way to go. To you to need to day. know that I was right. There we go. <laughs> Back to well, you, Kenny. I think. <laughs> Thanks for the throwback. Yeah, um, it's like we're on a news episode. Back to you, Kenny, with the weather. Like I said, uh, FXX has been showing uh, a very hefty block of them lately, and I don't know if that's like a new thing or, or whatever the case. But it is. Uh, um, is it? Okay. Yeah, they just reacquired or they just acquired okay. the rights uh, this year. Yeah. Well, uh, I noticed that the five or six episodes I watched this past week were all mid to early 90s so maybe that's why i enjoyed the glory years yeah yeah it sounds from what you guys are talking about that's that's the sweet spot and also sounds like i have a lot of catching up to do for sure (laughs) when when the simpsons kind of um changed their focus because in the early years they focused most of their episodes around bart because he was the most popular character at that time when they shifted their focus to homer which is just a great character in terms of how you can look at him because he's a horrible father and a terrible father figure, but he's an extremely interesting character if you center your series around him, and that's what they did for those years, and that's why I think a lot of people say those are the best episodes. The very first episode I watched the other day, they were at a circus, and Homer was hypnotized and and sent back to being 10 years old the entire episode. Yes, I remember that one. Who's the worst dad, Homer Simpson or Tony Soprano? I don't know, because Tony, <laughs> Tony, Tony Soprano, Soprano will kill people no matter what, so I don't know. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's definitely no contest for me. I mean, it's Tony <laughs> Soprano. Homer Simpson, like, chokes his son. Right, but it's he's true. a cartoon, so he can survive it. <laughs> 
Um, kind of moving away from The Simpsons, if we can. Did you have anything more to bring to um, that? Yeah, I, I, I did have one more thing. Um, this is... Well, I'll shut the sh- fuck up. This is <laughs> a show that is new to me, and I, I know I had a, a conversation with Tucson about this before we started recording. Apparently, it's in season four or... Is yeah, four it, it's just yet, wrapped or? up its uh, fourth season. So American Horror Story is a, another new one to me. Boom, and boom, uh, boom. <laughs> I'm doing the theme song. I was going to say, is that like a theme song? Yeah. Is that something at least that's involved with it? Oh, yeah. man, that was great. It's yeah. got a super industrial, creepy kind of theme song. It's like a Nine Inch Nails yeah, like yeah, offshoot. Right. Yeah. Um, I don't know if I've said this on the show yet, but I am also a huge fan, aside from comedies and sci-fis, I'm a big horror fan and you will you will be the horror film representative from the show because you like horror movies Me too, yeah. you said that it is introduction if you were paying attention why Ooh. were you not listening Ooh. anyway continue so yeah so this show is uh it, it's a very it seems very smartly written um so yeah. far keep in mind i'm three episodes into the first season so season. maybe it hasn't lost its luster yet with me but uh i i don't know it's just it's a damn good show so far yeah. from what I've seen. So I'm looking very forward to going into it further. Well, if it's my turn, then um, the two films that I saw this week that I absolutely love both of these films. And I feel like uh, at least one of them is kind is kind of underrated uh, is the film, the devil wears Prada starring Meryl Streep. Don't give me that look. Go watch it. Give it a chance. I did watch it. You didn't like it? <laughs> yeah, I okay. didn't like it. Okay, tell me why you did not like it. I only caught like half of it. In, like, okay, that, that, that's not fair. <laughs> okay, two sons stops talking now. <laughs> yeah. Okay, you caught half of it, and why did you not like the half that you saw of it? First of all, which half was it? Was it the first half or the second half? It was something to do with like getting the Harry Potter transcripts or some shit. Oh, yeah. Yeah, cool. That's That's a cool part of the film. I guess. Okay, so Meryl Streep is this <laughs> horrible person who is the C or the editor in chief of the um, fictional magazine Meryl Runway. Streep's a horrible person, right? Well, we already knew that, but <laughs> but in this film, she's also playing a horrible person, which is maybe why she does such a good job because she's <laughs> playing that in her real life character on the screen. Anyways, she's playing this terrible person who runs this magazine in, called Runway. And her character, pretty much everyone has said, is based off the person who is the editor-in-chief of the uh, magazine Vogue. Um, is she devilish? <laughs> Cruella de Villas. Well, but she kind of has hair, kind of her hair kind of looks like Cruella de Vil, I will Sorry, say. Maybe I was reading too much into the title. But it kind of you see the transformation from Anne Hathaway from the beginning when she is this wide-eyed journalist who gets a job as her assistant. And then you see where her character ends up at the end of the film. And I just really, really enjoyed it. I would recommend it for anybody because I think anybody could watch this and like it except for Toussaint. Also a film that I loved from 2013, which was supposed to be a theatrical release, which ended up being an HBO film uh, called Behind the Candelabra, the film about Liberace starring Michael Douglas and Matt Damon is just excellent, and I would recommend it to anybody as well. It's a great movie. I love it as well. It's a Steven Soderbergh film, so if you like anything from him, this is pretty much par for the course for films he's released. And if you don't like anything by him, then you can please stop listening to the podcast. <laughs> Damn. Good thing. Two episodes in, and Nick's already excluding listeners. That's that's good. I will continue that trend. Oh, good. That's that's, that's great. You're that's destroying the fan base. Just what we need to exclude people. I didn't go to business people. school, so I'm new at this. Okay. Wow. Okay. 
Um, but behind the candelabra, I would check it out. It's on it's on HBO on demand. It's been for the last year and a half, pretty much. So, give it a look. See, it's it's really interesting, and um, yeah, it's a very interesting character study. And I mean, I guess you could kind of say it's a biopic, but it's weird because it's both about Liberace and Scott Thorson, the man who lived with him for five years, who is played by Matt Damon. Mm-hmm. So that's a good film. So behind the candelabra. Uh, did win a couple of Golden Globes for best mini or best made for TV movie and best actor in made for TV film. It wasn't up for any Academy Awards because it wasn't a theatrical release. However, we did just have the 2015 Academy Awards happen this past weekend. And I think we all ended up seeing it. Um, yep. And I know one person who brought it up earlier who could not contain himself, who did not like the best picture winner, was Kenny, as Birdman won best picture. I feel like. Toussaint, Nick, and me are all cool with that for the most part. And it was my favorite film of last year, so I'm definitely on, on board with it, but I know Kenny was not too crazy about it. Uh, I mean, <laughs> yes, I'm, Kenny. <laughs> that is going to be a sound bite for later of this film, just going to be Kenny. Like, uh. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know. It wasn't a terrible movie. I, I actually enjoyed it in the theater to an extent. Um, but I feel like the second I walked out, I just started disliking it more and more. And what it was during the Oscars, it's one of those things that I know everybody's experienced when when you've got something on your shoulder, a chip on your shoulder about something, and it just starts picking off more and more awards. You just get angrier and angrier. <laughs> the only thing that saved it for me was that fucking Alejandro guy, the, the director, the, the producer. Yeah. The dude's hilarious. Like, every time he came on stage, it was a gem to just listen to anything he had to say. So... That was cool, and and uh, I was a fan of the fact that it won the Cinematography Award. Yeah, that... if Lubeski had lost again, it would have been another travesty, just like in 2010. So. To, to me, that was the one part of the movie I enjoyed most, was watching how they filmed that movie, and it was just so creative and different from anything that I normally would see that I was cool with that. When that award came up, I, I would have been shocked had it not won that, but outside of that, I just... I, I don't know. I'm a big Grand Budapest fan, so I was really hoping for more out of that, which it kind of did pretty well early on in the Oscars, but then when it got down to the serious business, it trailed off. And It tied with the awards for Birdman. It just won all the tactical mm-hmm. achievements. Yeah, it didn't win the big the big important ones at the end, but yeah, I don't know. Yeah, yeah did anyone else find it weird that Wes Anderson looked like a little kid in a candy store? Yeah, how, when, how old yeah, is that guy? <laughs> No, no, I'm serious. How he's, old is that guy? He's like, in his 40s or 50s. Yeah. I'm pretty sure. Forever young. He, he's just a, he's got this boyish charm enthusiasm that's just... Very... But he, he every time anybody won, he looked like a little kid who was well, watching his mom give a speech at church. That's because, no, but that's exactly what was, I mean, what was happening was that for the first time in years, the Academy was finally uh, giving, unfortunately not him... But at least his films, their due diligence. Because even if you don't like his film, I don't know that anybody could watch almost any of his films and not kind of realize how much at least thought was put into them. I mean, from the production design to the score to every technical aspect of his films are all meticulously thought out by him. And, of course, he has workers who are the ones who win the awards. And they're the ones, of course, who do do the uh, Mm -hmm. day-to-day stuff of it. But... He's, it's all his vision, so the idea that I think he was just so happy that finally even his own workers were getting the appreciation, because I'm sure they had to do much more work than your average uh, person in those kind of categories. 
even though I am kind of making fun of it and it's fine to poke fun at him every now and then because he's an easy target for that. But it is awesome to see somebody who is genuinely excited for other people to win awards where if you go pan to people's faces for the most part, if they don't win, they're just, you know, kind of like, eh, that's fine. Yeah. Or if, if somebody wins an award, they're just kind of have a blank face where he was very much into them winning for right. best costume design. Yeah, and it's a two-way street, too, because all every single one of the Grand Budapest uh, awards that won, every single person, I think, gave a speech in which the first thing out of their mouth was, this goes to Wes Anderson, basically, mm-hmm. because even they acknowledged that not so much that they didn't do, obviously do work or anything like that, but this these projects come together under his guidance and the the fact that he hasn't been ever uh you know nominated uh for best director or something i don't think he has at least um it's just kind of a travesty i was a little disappointed that he did not win for best original screenplay where birdman won for that that is my biggest upset of the night because i'm a fan of birdman as i've told you guys before but the for me the screenplay is the worst aspect of the film it's a film that works because for me at least because of the performances and because of the technical artistry going on Mm -hmm. and it's weakest parts are when the script gets way too uh kind of indulgent in some of its uh lesser aspects and there are for me at least great parts of that script where there are there are you know works with the english language which the english language is horrible but if you know how to kind of play with it you can have great double meaning for a lot of words which that does really well on birdman but I felt like the script in the Grand Budapest Hotel absolutely deserved to be the best written script. And it would have been Wes Anderson's first Academy Award, finally, for doing something that he did. And he would actually be receiving the award. And I thought that was kind of horrible. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And uh, what's ironic about that is that, of course, Birdman was shut out of its uh, big categories that I think it actually deserved, which were the acting categories. And they were shut out by the most, you know ridiculous wins in my opinion from julianne moore winning uh, the best actress not that somebody was up obviously in birdman for that but uh eddie redmayne winning over michael keaton just makes no sense to me <laughs> even though michael keaton doesn't even give the best performance in that in that film that for me edward norton but the idea that eddie redmayne just wins it because basically it was a biopic and the oscars eat that shit up and it's just that's uh if Birdman should have walked away with anything, which, of course, it walked away with a lot, it should have been acting, and it definitely should not have been uh, the uh, screenplay. Okay. You mean Birdman wasn't based on Michael Keaton's actual life? Oh. <laughs> uh... No, it wasn't. Okay. <laughs> um, so, you guys, uh, the three of us have seen Boyhood. Kenny has not seen Boyhood, I do not believe. Were, you, were no. you were you at all surprised that it only won one award? I know I'm cool with it only winning Best Supporting Actress, but I feel like, if anything, Richard Linklater sort of finally won for Best Director. He deserved it for this film, and I was shocked and kind of appalled that he did not win Best Director for it. I wasn't surprised. No, I wasn't surprised either because... No, okay, no, that's not true. I was surprised in the sense that I thought he would win right. uh, Best Director. I knew it was never going to win Best Picture because it's not... Uh, already in well that's already but it's not uh hollywood uh the academy i should say loves films about art and the meaning of art so that's of course why they ate birdman up but because i boyhood would be the kind of film that's just too simple for them and uh that's ultimately why i got kind of obviously the most flashiest part of 
Boyhood, which is Patricia Arquette's performance, because she gets to scream and shout in a certain scene, mm-hmm. is the only thing that got recognized because that's all they can pay attention to because they're probably sleeping throughout the rest of the film. <laughs> they're which which is old. exactly what you were doing, so that's fine. I was not sleeping. I know you, you, you did not love that as much as other people did, though. I did not. I thought it was a very... Uh, it was a it was a decent film uh, boosted up by a much better just, uh, you know, uh, what do I want to say? Gimmick and achievement. Yeah. It's not a great film, in my opinion. I'm sorry for all the people who find it to be a modern masterpiece, but no offense, but if he had shot this script over a year, this would be one of the most negatively reviewed films ever. But because he shot it over 12 years then apparently we're all just going to let some things slide, despite the fact that there are some horrible grievances in this film. It's a technical achievement. Yeah, I would even call it technical. I would just call it it's a, it's a temporal achievement. I mean, yeah. it's, it's just a film that does play with time, but doesn't actually do anything remarkable enough with it to merit doing it. That said, I mean, I own the film. I, I, I enjoy the film. I enjoy what Richard Linklater does as a filmmaker. So as a part of a kind of a filmography, I, I appreciate it. But... It, he just he did it so much better in the before movies, uh, the before trilogy. Which if anybody hasn't seen those, go out and watch all three of them in order, and uh, <laughs> you'll see how a filmmaker can truly play with time and uh, and relationships, and it's fantastic. Very good. Well, since we're speaking on the Oscars, we already mentioned that we're going to be reviewing Whiplash on our next episode. That one for best editing, which it definitely deserved. It also J.K. Simmons, who is the supporting character. Uh, who won for Best Supporting Actor, is the supporting character in the film to the main character who is played by Miles Teller. Uh, we're going to review Whiplash on our next episode, and I am definitely interested that we're going to be reviewing it, and I hope everyone else is as well. Um, if you found us on iTunes or wherever you found us, thank you for listening to our show. And also, uh, if you want to find us on our website, go to filmtankshow.com. If you want to send us an email and get involved with the show we'd love to hear your feedback and also if you want to give us a review on whiplash or any film um, in the future we'd love to be able to read your review and maybe even talk about what you had to say about it on the show so send us an email at filmtankshow at gmail.com and you can find us also on all the social media sites uh twitter facebook instagram so just search film tank show and you will find us on there so from nick cheney Toussaint egan kenny marcellus And myself, Alex Diegman, thank you for listening, and we'll catch up with you next time.